Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and we are starting a new chapter. That's always exciting. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Let's read those verses together. Behold, I love this passage. In fact, we used to do a song back in the old days at Calvary Costa Mesa. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. You ever heard that song? Here it is. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, what an awesome passage. We thank you for this opportunity to study this passage in 1 John chapter 3 today, and we are excited about the spiritual food that you've prepared for us. Lord, we do pray indeed that you would feed your sheep today, Lord, and just give us open hearts, open minds, and help us to receive all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So behold... Observe, look at, make note of, pay special attention to what I'm about to say, says John. Behold, what are we to observe? What are we to look at, make note of, and pay special attention to? What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us? What manner? The Greek is patapos. It means of what sort or quality. Behold, make special note of the quality, the caliber, the significance of the love the Father has bestowed upon us. John is exhorting his dear children, and that would include us, because we are, even though we're generations removed, we are offspring of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are John's dear children at a distance. He's exhorting us to make special note of this very amazing kind of love that God has bestowed upon His kids. We've already kind of talked about it this morning with communion and the sacrifice that Christ made. The word here, as you might suspect, love is agape, God's unconditional love, the kind of love that gives all, expecting nothing in return. And he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed, or... Some translations use the word lavished. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed or lavished on us. Expended, bestowed, or occurring in profusion. Lavish spending. To expend or give in great amounts or without limit. When you love someone so much, you just can't stop doing things for them. Do you know what that's like? Hopefully, we all have someone in our lives like that, that we just love them so much we can't stop doing things. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, grandchild. Grandparents seem to be especially fond of their grandkids. You can't stop doing things for them, giving them gifts continuously. And every time you see them, you just want to hug them, squeeze them, and kiss them. You know what I'm talking about? When you would willingly, joyfully, without hesitation, in a heartbeat, Lay down your life for them. 
John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That was Jesus. That's agape. And when that is your heart attitude, then you are lavishing love upon them. This gives us a, a little bit of an understanding of what John is talking about here. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed or lavished on us. And then he gets more specific as to how that love manifests itself that we should be called children of God. Now we can call ourselves anything we like, right? And we're certainly living in a day and age where that's happening like never before. People identifying uh, as a different gender than they actually were born into. I just heard where this, this one guy who was transgendered or transitioning or something. I mean, you see pictures of him. He looks like a big, hulky guy. But he competed in the women's weightlifting championships. You hear about this? And he won every category. Oh, boy, I'll tell you what, folks. Sometimes when you get what you wish for, it doesn't turn out so good. You know, all this um, feminism and all this, you know, all the crazy stuff going on in the world. Uh, then one day you wake up and you find out it, it just bit you in the backside. And that's what's happening today. Reminded me of that Bob Dylan song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. He says, you may call me Terry. You may call me Timmy. You may call me Bobby because Bob Dylan's real name is Robert Zimmerman. You may call me Bobby. You may call me Zimmy. You may call me RJ. You may call me Ray. You may call me anything, but no matter what you say, you're still going to have to serve somebody. Very profound lyrics. We can call ourselves anything we like. There was that other lady, Rachel Dolezal, who was a blonde, freckled, blue-eyed Caucasian girl who started identifying as an African-American. Remember her? Got a suntan, dyed her hair black, got a perm. I mean, she went all out, baby. You can call yourself anything, but it's what God calls us that counts. Do, do people realize that? Do we understand that? What does God say about us? Well, Galatians 3.26 of course, this is directed towards, like, I love that term that Carl was using this morning, genuine Christian. Because we've talked about people who identify as Christians, right? A genuine Christian. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God. And ladies, don't be offended. It's just a generic term. We, you're daughters of God, okay? It's all good. You are all sons of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. This is who God says we are in Christ. doesn't matter who you say you are. Who does God say you are? Well, if he says that you're his son or his daughter, that's good news. Right? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You see, there is a, a misconception in the world with many people that think, well, if there really is a God and we're really His offspring, we're, born, we're created by Him, then we're all God's children, right? No. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were sons of the devil, and these guys were religious. It literally means born ones of God. Jesus said in John chapter 
3, you must be born again. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. See, it's not automatic. Being called a child of God is a privilege that is bestowed upon us by the Father when we acknowledge His Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. He gave the right. You know, we live in an age of entitlement where everybody thinks they're entitled to everything, whether they've earned it or not. Now, you and I could never earn our salvation, so Jesus earned it for us on the cross. And when we acknowledge that, when we accept that sacrifice for our sins, we humble ourselves before Him, we confess our sins, we repent, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, we become born ones of God. And then He gives us the right to become children of God. Charles Ryrie has his own study Bible. I've always enjoyed his commentary. He says, We can even now know Him as a child knows its father. The future relationship no words can describe. And we're going to look at that here in just a second. Now, there's a portion here of 1 John 3, 1 that we don't find in the King James and the New King James. However, this phrase, and it's a good one, is included in most other translations. And it says this, And that is what we are, children of God, and that is what we are, or, and such we are, or, and so we are. God calls us His children, and so we are, if we've been born again by the Spirit of God. And again, it's not because we say so. It's because God says so. So we move on here. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. So those who are of the world, those who do not know Jesus, and there are a multitude of those folks running around out there, they just don't get what we're all about. And it's so obvious when you hear all the various comments that people make about Christianity, about believers, and um, even as we're seeing a worldwide ramping up of anti-Semitism, keep Israel in your prayers, 300 bombs, 300 rockets launched from uh, Gaza against Israel yesterday. 300 rockets. Pray for them. But we're seeing, and it shouldn't be surprising, you know, we've, how many of you remember our good friend Avi Lipkin? Avi's been here many times, and he always emphasizes the fact that the, the motto of the, um, at least the extreme element within Islam, their philosophy, their motto is, kill the Jews on Saturday, because that's their day of worship. Interestingly, the Muslim day of worship is Friday. Saturday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. Kill the Jews on Saturday, kill the Christians on Sunday. They consider us both to be the people of the book, that book being the Bible. But we're seeing this duality right now happening all over the world, the rise of anti-Semitism and also the rise of Christian persecution. The latest reports on Christian persecution in various parts of the world is it's reaching genocidal levels. Genocidal levels, which equates to annihilation. 
But again, not surprising because we are in the last days. But Jesus warned about that 2,000 years ago. He says in John 15, 18, and 19, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, right? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, we've, many of us here today, us older folks, we've grown up in kind of a grace period, which is coming to an end. This nation was established by Christians who moved here to avoid religious persecution in Europe. And all of our founding fathers and founding documents were based upon the truth of God's Word. And so, for the last 250 years or so, or even more, there's been that underlying Judeo-Christian foundation for this nation. Pastor Dave and Pastor Ed and I went to the, uh, the Gideons, annual Gideons Pastors Appreciation Lunch last week, this past week. And we love that organization. Tim Miller's a Gideon. In fact, they're, they're crying out for more members. So it's, it's an exciting ministry dedicated to spreading Bibles all over the world. In fact, I think this summer we'll probably have John Wofford come and share with us from the Gideons. But I, I'll never forget, this has stuck with me throughout my life. I believe I was in the fifth grade. I was going to elementary school in downtown Scottsdale, Arizona, which was rather quaint back then. And we came out after school. The bell rings. We're dismissed. Come out. And on the sidewalk, there's all these guys lined up with New Testaments, giving them out to the kids. On the school property. That doesn't happen now. They make them stand across the street. If they're, you know, with some good fortune, God's help, God's blessings, they're able to get some Bibles out to some of these kids. But my point is this. We grew up here in America being very much at ease about our faith, about our Christianity, and especially back in the uh, late 60s on through the entire decade of the 70s, it actually became kind of cool to be a Christian. It was the Jesus movement. They were even playing Jesus music on secular radio. Spirit in the Sky, I know it's got some theological problems, the song, but people get ready. I mean, there were a number of, uh, put your hand in the hand of the man. Remember that one? That one's fine. There's no theological problems with that song. It's just a good gospel song, but it was a big hit on the secular radio. Uh, things have changed a bit since then. I mean, mocking Christ, mocking His people has pretty much become an outward, overt, everyday thing now, even in America. So I'm just trying to say, sometimes it's hard for us to process this idea that Christians are really actually being persecuted tormented, and even executed for their faith. We just haven't experienced that here in America yet. And, of course, I'm hoping and praying the rapture comes first. But I know this. I know God's grace is sufficient for us, and whatever we may have to go through in this life, God will be with us. If you doubt that, read a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of you read that book? Everybody should read that book. That is a classic. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Tremendous stories of God's grace and mercy and help for those under severe persecution. But those who are of the world, 
those who do not know Jesus, they don't just get what we're all about. And sometimes it's our own fault because we don't properly, accurately represent Christ. But even when we do, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. But, uh, you know, they think it's weird if you go to church every week, right? Why do you go to church, man? You know, that place is filled with hypocrites. Well, you know what? So is the world. So I guess it's a matter of choosing which hypocrites you want to hang out with. Because they're everywhere. So I'll hang out with the Christian hypocrites. And, of course, we will we'll do our best not to be hypocrites, right? But we acknowledge our sins. We acknowledge our faults. We're not perfect. And at some point in time, we've all been guilty of hypocritical attitudes, actions, behavior. It's like Barry McGuire said once, you know, uh, he had a friend uh, after he got saved. He was the guy that sang that song, Eve of Destruction. You ever heard that? And he used to be with the new Christie minstrels and all that. Barry was quite the guy back in the day. Then he got saved. And uh, some one of his friends had accused him, all you Christians are just brainwashed. And he said, yeah, but at least I get to choose who washed my brain. <laughs> Why do you go to church, man? That's, what a drag, what a waste of time. Why do you read the Bible, pray, talk about Jesus all the time? They don't get it. You know, why don't you go out drinking more, smoke some dope, have some sex with me anymore? Why don't you do those things, the fun things? Yeah, the kind that kill you, right? The kind that destroy you. There's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death and destruction. So we shouldn't be upset or concerned about this. Now here, here's something we, maybe we should be concerned about. If those in the world do get where we're coming from, then it's quite possible we're too much like them and not enough like him. I mean, none of us want to be hated. And like I said, for the most part, up until recent times, we haven't had to worry too much about that in America, but it's becoming more and more real every day. But I forget who said this, but it's a good line. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? So if we aren't experiencing some blowback from the world, some resistance, some criticism, then maybe we're not looking enough like Jesus. If non-believers are just way too comfortable around us, there could be a problem. Our goal should be to emulate Jesus in such a way that those who hate us because we're like Him, check this out. They might hate us because we're like Him, but our goal should be to emulate Him in such a way that even though they may hate us for being like Him, they also have a burning desire to know Him. You know what I'm talking about? Oftentimes that, that reaction of hatred or anger or resistance is really indicative of someone who's wrestling with God and on the verge of breaking out into a true faith in Christ. The people who are kind of nonchalant and indifferent, man, those are the hardest ones to reach. The ones who are kind of numb. But oftentimes those who are 
Well, look at Saul, perfect example. Man, he hated Christians, didn't he? Saul is notorious, who became Paul, by the way, I'm sure you know that. But he was notorious for holding the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen to death, the first martyr of the New Testament church. He was traveling around hunting down Christians to arrest them with the goal of executing them. And so that's why when he got saved, remember he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, but all the apostles were very skeptical of this guy. They didn't trust him at first. He had to prove himself. And yet, the fact of the matter is, he was closer to becoming a believer than many others who were neutral, uninvolved, unconcerned, and so forth. So we should never write someone off because they are antagonistic, hateful, angry, resistant. In fact, that's probably a pretty good sign that the Holy Spirit's getting under their skin. Another example that I thought of, we often hear how unpopular Americans are in other parts of the world. For example, Europe, you often hear you know, how much how disgusted the Europeans are by we Americans. They hate Americans and so forth. And yet they do everything in their power to be like us. You ever notice that? And, and again, other groups that claim to hate us, and yet more than anything else, they want to be us. They want to be here. If America is so horrible, how come everybody wants to come here? And again, we have our problems. We have our issues and that they all center around the fact that America has turned its back on God. Not everybody, but a lot of people have turned their back on God, and a lot of people in positions of power and authority have turned their back on God, and yet we find people who say they hate America, and they hate Americans, you know. Everybody in the whole wide world wears <laughs> Levi's, right? Our music, our culture, and that's not always good either. I mean, we've a lot of the things that we have impacted the rest of the world with are not good things. But there is one thing we've impacted the rest of the world with that is good, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the big mistake that many of our leaders are making today is trying to be like them. This whole move towards socialism, something that's worked so well in other parts of the world. And we are losing the very qualities that on the one hand cause them to hate us and at the same time give them an unquenchable desire to be like us. And we can, we can carry that over into the church. We, we don't like the idea of being hated, disliked, and so forth, but it's the very qualities that cause people to hate us that are most likely to bring them to Jesus. Do you know that? All right, verse 2, moving right along. Beloved. Again, that term of endearment from John. Now we are children of God. So, hey, John's making it crystal clear. And it's because of the love that God has bestowed or lavished upon us in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross for our sins that has enabled us to become children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see him as he is. See, John can, based upon 
the profession of faith of these believers that he's writing to, their profession of faith coupled with their fruit, by their fruit you shall know them, Jesus said, he can confidently tell his beloved dear friends that they, like him, are children of God. And so I can, as a pastor here today, confidently tell you if you have indeed confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've confessed your sins, if you've repented, if you've invited Him to come and live inside of you, you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you are a child of God. It's interesting, he says, it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. I think I've said this before. Do you get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, glory? <laughs> wow. Look at that glorious child of God. <laughs> On the surface, everybody looks the same, right? Now, when you meet somebody, oftentimes you can see it in their eyes, right? Their countenance. Amy Grant had that song many years ago. I think it was her first big hit, My Father's Eyes. She has her father's eyes. And so, yeah, there, there are times when you look at someone and, and you interact with them and you go, I, I think they're a Christian. And it wouldn't hurt to ask. Because if they are, great. And if they're not, you can witness to them. But compared to what we will be, now we get a glimpse of what Jesus looks like in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We know what we are now. We are children of God. We haven't been perfected. We are imperfect. We are flawed. We are sinners saved by grace. Mortal human beings inhabited by the Spirit of the living God. But we, in our lengthy study in the book of Romans several years ago, quite a few years ago now in the, when we were in the other building, uh, we talked about this ongoing struggle, the dual nature of the believer here on earth, the old man fighting against the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God living in us. The duality of that, that old man continually trying to rise up again from the dead, so to speak. And yet amazing as this is that God has chosen to place His Spirit in earthen vessels. That's us. It's nothing compared to what we will be when we see Jesus face to face. So for any that might be discouraged thinking, wow, this is what a child of God looks like? <laughs> a little bit disappointed here. No. It's nothing compared to what we will be when we see Jesus face to face. Romans chapter 8, 18 and 19. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Hasn't been fully revealed yet. This is just stage one, phase one. This is to get, just get us out of darkness into light, from death into life. It's just the beginning. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation has been impacted by the fall of man. The whole world is under the curse. And so, in some mystical, supernatural way, all of creation, because God has injected this DNA into everything, 
It's, it's waiting. All of creation's waiting for us to be fully revealed for who we are in Christ, what we shall be. So John says it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but, when we, but we know that when he appears, and one translation says when he is revealed. We know that he's coming again because he's made this promise to us and Jesus never lies, right? His appearing is a reference to the rapture of the church, I believe, when we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It won't be a public appearing to the whole world. That's the second coming when we come back with him. But when he calls us up to meet him in the air, we shall see him and we shall be like him. Here's a thought regarding these things, that when we die, the New Testament refers to it as falling asleep. According to Jesus, who told the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Apostle Paul wrote, I would prefer to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. When we die or when we fall asleep as believers, our spirits immediately enter into paradise, the Lord's presence. However, once we leave the earthly boundaries of time and space, here's how I see it. It'll only seem like a moment, the twinkling of an eye, until our spirits are reunited with our glorified, resurrected bodies. So although the whole world will suffer through a horrible seven-year tribulation, to us, Watching from heaven, it will all take place in a flash, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul writes. We shall not all sleep. What he means is there will be a generation of believers alive on the earth at the rapture of the church. We shall not all sleep. Some will be living some will not taste physical death. Most will. But there will be a generation alive on the earth that will not taste physical death. A generation of believers, that is. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And by the way, when Paul says, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Paul believed that it would happen in his lifetime. Was Paul stupid, ignorant, misinformed? No. Paul had the heart attitude that God wants every believer to have, and that is that Jesus could come at any moment. How fast is the twinkling of an eye, by the way? It's actually the blink of an eye, and it is estimated to be between 300 and 400 milliseconds. A millisecond is one one-thousandth of a second. So based upon that, it'll take approximately a third of a second for us to be resurrected, transformed, and caught up to meet Jesus in the air. It's pretty good. I've always envisioned it something like the transporter in uh, Star Trek. Well, think about it. If the rapture happened right now, would we hit our heads on the ceiling going out? No. Dematerialize, rematerialize in a brand new way. Again, this is, this is a, not a speculative thing here. John says, we shall be like him. Isn't that the goal and desire of every believer? To be like him in every way? 
In other words, perfect in every way. Physically, spiritually. 1 Corinthians 13, 9, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, and by the way, that is Jesus, perfection can't come unless Jesus comes. Get it? When perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, the only downside here for those that are married is you're hoping to perfect your spouse in this life. And it's not going to happen. And when it does happen, you won't be married anymore. <laughs> because there's no marriage in heaven. Just when they get to the point that you really like them, you're not married anymore. Sorry about that. Same goes for your kids. Hopefully they know the Lord, right? That's probably the biggest burden of every parent, every grandparent. We don't want, I pray every night, Father, do not let one of my family members suffer the fires of hell. Let not one of them be lost to the fires of hell. None of us probably think of anything worse than that. But hopefully they'll all be there and they'll be perfect, but they won't be your kids anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good thing we'll all be perfect. Otherwise, we might be bummed out. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly. In Paul's day, have you ever seen an antique mirror? They're kind of dim, aren't they? They almost have a blackish tinge to them. And so that was the perspective from which Paul was writing. Well, now we see in a mirror dimly and even in this day and age, do you ever look in the mirror in the morning and think everything looks great and you go out in the sunlight and you just about have a heart attack? <laughs> I didn't look like that in the bathroom. <laughs> What's going on here? It's all a matter of lighting, right? We see in a mirror dimly, but then... So, see, right now, we see God, we see Christ through His Word. His Word is perfect. But it is a mirror. James talks about that in James chapter 1. That when we read the word, it's like looking in the mirror. It gives us a reflection of who we really are apart from Christ, who we are in Christ. It's like a mirror. But it's not the same as seeing Jesus face to face. Now we see in a mirror darkly or dimly. Then face to face, Paul, who probably knew and knows more than you and I ever will, now, Paul says, I know in part, but then, then, when is then? When he sees Jesus face to face, I shall know just as I am also known. God knows us inside out, doesn't he? The Bible tells us even the very hairs of our head are numbered. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But one day, we will have that full knowledge because it will be imparted to us when we see him face to face. For we shall see him, John writes here in verse 2, we shall see him as he is, which would be in all of his glory. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of that. I think we talked about this recently. Matthew 17, 1 and 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Peter, James, and John got a preview of coming attractions. And since we're told 
we will be like him. And I've talked about this before too. The Bible says we're the children of the light. We will be beings of light. The real deal. Not the false deceptive beings of light. When you Google on the internet, you get millions of hits on beings of light. And it's all about these false beings, these alien beings, demonic entities. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. But Jesus is the real deal, and one day we're going to look just like him. Revelation 1, 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, John writes. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, these are the seven churches of Asia Minor, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, Jesus, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a gold band. His head and hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. Remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he put a veil over his face because he was glowing. You know what happens when you come into the presence of God? Well, if you don't know him, if you're not a believer, then you're incinerated because God dwells in unapproachable light. God is a flaming fire. But if you know him like Moses did and you come into his presence, you start glowing. God is radioactive. And Moses, to hide that glow, would have kind of freaked people out. You know, he's walking through the, hey, somebody get Moses. It's dark out here. You know. <laughs> Moses did not want to become a human flashlight. But one day you and I are going to glow eternally because we're going to live forever in his presence. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Talk about a power source. And finally, John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope in him, in him, not him, big H, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What hope are we talking about? The hope of eternal life the hope of absolute perfection and complete knowledge and understanding of all things. Now, some people already think they know everything about everything. They're fun to be around, by the way. <laughs> but the time is coming when all those who know God will know everything about everything. And when you, when you think about that, then you ask the question, what will be the eternal mental and physical state of those who reject Christ. It's a scary thought. Total mental chaos, confusion, torment. Nobody should want that. Everyone who has this hope in Him, our hope rests solely and absolutely in Jesus. Without Him, we have no hope. That's so important to understand because people put their hope and trust in so many different people and so many different things, do they not? And there's only one true, reliable source of hope, and that's God, that's Jesus Christ. And what happens when you have that hope? According to John, you purify yourself. And then you say, well, what does that mean? I thought the only one who could purify us was Jesus. 
But 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul writing again, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So what is he talking about? You've already been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You've been saved. You've been born again. But you have a responsibility now. And we read in the scriptures about the cleansing, the washing of the water of the word. It's like I've used this analogy before. Somebody gives you a beautiful brand new car. But you know what? You have to take care of that car or it's going to deteriorate, right? It's going to fall apart. It's going to wear out. You've got to change your oil, put air in your tires, all that stuff. You didn't buy the car. It was given to you. But now that it's been given to you, it's your responsibility to take care of it. That's the same thing that applies to our salvation. Jesus did the heavy lifting. God did the hard work. He sent His one and only Son into this world to die on the cross. We've talked today about the sufferings of Christ. God did the hard part, but now we have a responsibility. John says, if you have been a recipient of this wonderful, glorious hope, then what's the proper response? You purify yourself. You, you pray. You read the Word. You fellowship with other believers. You practice these disciplines of the Christian faith. James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. He already reached out to us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Now, we have a responsibility to respond. Not just once, but daily. Honey, I told you I love you 20 years ago. What's the problem? <laughs> right? When we don't regularly express our love and affection for our spouses, our children, our friends, whatever... When we don't make an effort, there tends to be a distancing, does there not? People grow apart. We can grow apart from God. We have to maintain our relationship. We have to purify ourselves. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Peter goes nuts and goes, Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, Peter says, no, Lord, you're not washing my feet. I'm too humble for that. Jesus says, fine, and you have no part with me. Okay, bathe me all over. Mr. Extreme, right? Jesus said, you don't need a bath because he's talking about salvation. Peter had been washed. He was saved. He believed. You just need to wash your feet, Peter, because when you walk through this life, your feet get dirty. And that's how it is for us. We've been bathed. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But as we go through life on a day-to-day -day basis, our feet get dirty, right? We need to purify ourselves. By coming to Him daily, by talking to Him, by reading His Word, all these things that we've talked about. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, this is one of my favorite verses. We've studied it a few weeks ago. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's our part? Confess our sins. How do you, how do you purify yourself? You can't die on the cross for yourself. Your blood can't save anybody. How do you purify yourself? By walking in confession and repentance by not letting anything happen in your life that separates you from God being quick to repent to confess because the promise is if we do he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us purify us from all unrighteousness so everyone who has this hope in him 
purifies himself. You don't want that beautiful vehicle that he's given you to fall apart. You don't want your faith to go south. You want to stay strong in the Lord, so you purify yourself by confessing your sins and walking in relationship with him. Purifies himself just as he is pure. That's a given. Jesus is pure. He doesn't need to purify himself. He's eternally, perpetually pure. But our desire, our goal as children of God should be to practice righteousness, to do what is right, to be like the righteous Holy One. As we saw last time in verse 29 of chapter 2, if you know that he is righteous, that he is pure, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. I believe we mentioned that last time, that if we want to get better at being righteous, we have to practice, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this fantastic passage. We thank you for the wonderful, glorious promise that we are indeed children of God, not because we say so, but because you say, Lord, and you have the final say on everything, God. No one can refute that. No angel in heaven, no demon in hell, no person that's of this world can refute the fact that in Christ we are children of God. That's a wonderful, glorious promise that you've given us. Thank you for lavishing us with your love, that agape love, that greater love that hath no man than a man lay down his life for his friends. Lord, we are so blessed. We have so much to be thankful for. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to purify ourselves daily, to walk in confession and repentance of sin. Lord, we thank you that you've given us that means whereby we maintain our salvation. Lord, you've given it to us. It's a free gift. We could never earn it. But now we have a responsibility to maintain it, to keep it in good repair. And we know that you've given us the Holy Spirit to help us. We thank you for that. Pray for anyone here today, Father, who needs salvation. Anyone who has not been born again by the Spirit of God, that this very day they would yield their life over to you, that they would acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be born again by the Spirit of God. Anyone that's discouraged, anyone that the enemy has beaten down, that you would restore them today, that you would encourage them, that you would help them to lay hold of that wonderful promise. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray that as we sing our final song this morning and as we pray for those who would desire prayer, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon each one. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.